You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Modern Art of Education. This is Lecture 7, entitled Rhythm, Sleep, Imitation, given on August 11, 1923. The transition from early childhood to school is marked by the change of teeth around the seventh year. And in studying this period, it must be remembered that until the seventh year, Children work, so to speak, as inner sculptors. Formative forces emanate from the head, organizing and shaping the child's whole being. Everything in a child's environment, including the moral qualities, now plays a role in developing the vascular system, the circulation of the blood and the processes of breathing, so that as physical beings we bear within us throughout life the results of the imitative period of childhood, from birth until the second dentition. It cannot be said, of course, that this is our only conditioning, because much can be rectified in the body later through the exercise of moral forces and inner soul activity. Nevertheless, we should recognize what a wonderful heritage we can give children on their path through life, if we help make their physical body into a container for moral spiritual qualities. If, in other words, we help children's inner sculptor up to the age of seven by bringing them only what is moral and conducive to fruitful activity in life. I spoke more in detail about these things yesterday, and much more will emerge as the lectures proceed. Teachers, therefore, must understand that once children have passed their seventh year, these formative forces are transformed into soul activity, so that they long for imagery, and this should indicate the fundamental principle of childhood education. After the second dentition until adolescence, most important is the development of the rhythmic system, the breathing and blood circulation, along with everything related to the rhythm of digestive functions. Whereas teachers find a need for imagery in children's souls, they have to work with the rhythmic system as an organic system. Consequently, an imaginative element must prevail in all the child's tasks. I would say that a musical quality must pervade the relationship between teachers and students. Rhythm, measure, and even melody must be present as the basic principle of teaching, and thus teachers must have this musical quality within themselves and in their lives as a whole. The rhythmic system dominates in children's organic nature during this first period of school, and their education must follow a certain rhythm. Teachers must possess this musical element so deeply, in a sense instinctively, that true rhythm will prevail in the classroom. It is evident that during the early years of school, after the age of seven, real education must arise from a foundation of art, 
The reason why education today leaves so much to be desired is that modern civilization is not conducive to the development of an artistic feeling. I am not referring to any particular art, but to the fact that sound educational principles can develop only from an entirely artistic view of civilization. This is very significant. If we can imbue our teaching with an artistic quality, we influence children's rhythmic systems. Such teaching makes a child's breathing and circulation healthier. We must be clear that on the one hand our task is to lead children into life, to help them develop a sound faculty of judgment for later life, and so at this age we must teach them to use their intelligence, but not through any form of coercion. On the other hand, we must help children toward health in later life, in so far as their destiny permits. Thus we must pay enough attention to physical care and exercise. To accomplish this, however, we need a deeper understanding of the whole human being. In our culture, in which all eyes are focused on material things, no attention is directed to the condition of sleep, even though we devote one-third of our earthly lives to it. This rhythm of waking and sleeping is extremely important. We should never think that we are not active when we sleep. We are inactive only in relation to the outer world, but in terms of the body's health, and more important, the health of the soul and spirit. Sleep is very important. Real education can provide for a proper life of sleep, because whatever we do during our waking hours, it is carried into sleep, and this is especially true of children. We must understand only this. The rhythmic system, the basis of all artistic activity, never becomes tired. Breathing and the heart activity continue from birth to death. It is only the processes of thought and volition that lead to fatigue. Thinking and physical movement cause fatigue. And because they are always involved, we can say that all life's activities lead to fatigue. In the case of children, however, we must be especially careful that this happens as little as possible. We can do this by making sure that during the early school years our teaching has an essential quality of art, because we then call on the rhythmic system of children, which tires least of all. What happens, then, if we demand too much of the intellect by urging children to think? It involves certain organic forces that tend to harden the body inwardly. What happens, then, if we demand too much of the intellect by urging children to think? It involves certain organic forces that tend to harden the body inwardly. Such forces lead to saline deposits in the body and form bone, cartilage, and tendons, all those parts of the body that tend to become rigid. Normal rigidity becomes overdeveloped if intellectual thinking is forced. We are at work inwardly on hardening our organism while we are awake. And if we require too much of the intellect, too much hardening takes place. When we force children to think too much, it can lead to premature hardening of the arteries. Consequently, it is essential to truly observe the nature of a child. 
and develop a fine sense of just how much we should demand, because a vital principle is at stake. If we ask children to think by teaching them to learn letters and write in an intellectual way, we stress their mental powers and sow the seeds of a tendency towards sclerosis. Human beings have absolutely no inner relationship to the letters of modern writing. They are little, in quotes, demons, insofar as human nature is concerned. And we must find the right way to approach them. We find this way by first engaging children's artistic feeling, letting them paint or draw the cut lines and colors that flow on their own onto the paper from their innermost being. Then when a child is artistically active in this way, one always feels, and feeling is the essential thing, that people are too enriched by the that people are too enriched by the artistic activity. One gets the sense that intellectuality impoverishes the soul and makes us inwardly barren, whereas artistic activity makes us inwardly rich, too rich in fact, so that it must be modified in some way. Artistic imagery tends to pass automatically into a more attenuated form of concepts and ideas, and it becomes necessary to impoverish the artistic aspect by intellectualizing it. After stimulating a child artistically, however, if we then allow intellectuality to develop from that artistic feeling, the artistic element will have the right intensity. It will take hold of the body so that a balanced hardening can take place. By forcing the intellectual powers of children, we hinder their growth. We liberate those forces, however, by approaching the intellect through art. Thus, during the early school years, a Waldorf school tries to educate through art rather than through the intellect. Teaching thus begins with imagery, not intellect. The teacher-child relationship is pervaded by music and rhythm, and thus we attain the necessary degree of intellectual development in children. Consequently, mental training is also the very best physical education. To a more sensitive observer, there is plenty of evidence today that many adults are too rigid inwardly. They seem to drag their bodies around like wooden machines. It is really typical of our time that people carry their bodies as though they were burdens, whereas a more genuine and artistic education develops people so that every step and gesture, which will later benefit humanity, provides an inner sense of joy and well-being. By educating intellectually, we loosen the soul from the body, and one goes through life feeling that the body is merely, quote, of the earth, close quote, so that it has no value and must be overcome. As a result, we may give ourselves to a purely mystical life of soul and spirit, feeling that only spirit has value. When we educate correctly, however, it leads us through truth to spirit, the creative spirit within the body. God did not create the world with the notion that matter is evil and must be avoided. No world would have come into being if that had been the God's thought. The world emanated from divine spirit only because the gods ordained that spirit would be directly and immediately active in matter. Once people realize that their best path in every area of life 
is directed by divine intention. They will choose an education that does not alienate them from the world, but transform them into beings whose soul and spirit remain with the body throughout life. Anyone who must continually cast off the body to become immersed in thought is no real thinker. The waking life is related to everything we are able to do in a healthy way to develop the intellect on the basis of artistic activity. All physical culture, however, has a definite relationship to a child's sleep. To understand what constitutes a healthy physical education, we must first understand how physical exercise affects a child's sleep. All physical activity that arises from the will through the soul is indeed a flow of volitional impulses into the motor system. Even in purely mental activity, the will is active and flowing into the limbs. If you sit at a desk and decide what tasks others will do, volitional impulses also flow into your limbs. In this case, we merely hold them back. You may sit still, but the orders you give are in fact an influx of volition into your limbs. Consequently, you must discover what is important in those physically active will impulses before their development can affect sleep in the right way. Everything transformed into action by the human will causes a process of organic combustion. When I think, I solidify my organism and deposit solids in it. With my will, I burn up something in my organism. But this inner process of combustion must not be thought of as physical combustion like that of chemistry or physics. When a candle is lit, an external process of combustion occurs. But only materialistic thinking would compare the process of inner combustion to the flame of a candle. In the human organism, the soul and spirit take hold of the processes of outer nature, so that within the human body and even in a plant, the outer substances of nature are active in a different way. Likewise, the burning process in a human being is completely different from the process of combustion in a candle. Nevertheless, a certain kind of combustion is always induced in the body when we will, even when the impulse does not cause us to move physically. Because we generate inner combustion, we do something to our organism that only sleep can rectify. In a sense, our bodies would literally burn up if sleep did not reduce combustion to the proper intensity. Not in the crude sense of natural science, but in a subtle, more intimate way. Sleep regulates inner combustion by spreading it throughout the organism. Otherwise, it would remain confined to the organs of movement. There are two ways to accomplish physical movement. Consider the exercises children are often asked to do. The idea is, parenthesis, everything is, in quotes, idea in a materialistic age, despite the belief that one is dealing with facts, close parenthesis, that children should move in, a cer- in certain ways in games or gymnastic exercises because this is how they grow up to be civilized human beings. As a rule, the best movements are those that adults are used to because the goal is that children should grow up to be exact replicas of their elders. Thus they are required to do the same sort of gymnastics. In other words, there will be a certain opinion about what is appropriate to the right sort of adult 
and this is in turn applied to the child. Thus, out of an abstract idea, although it involves the actual, one forces something material on children. Gymnastic apparatus is so contrived that it requires children to make the desired specific movements. But this initiates combustion processes that the human organism can no longer regulate. As a result, such methods of physical education lead to restless sleep. Again, such matters are not so physically obvious that they can be confirmed by conventional medicine, but they occur, nevertheless, in the finer, more subtle processes of the human body. When we give children such conventional gymnastic exercises, they cannot get the deep, sound sleep they need, and the physical constitution is not sufficiently restored by sleep. When we educate children by bringing everything to them in an artistic way, then, just as an overly rich artistic life leads to a longing for the impoverishing nature of intellectual work, parenthesis, the intellect is drawn in an elemental way out of the artistic, close parenthesis, Similarly, a hunger for physical activity arises in children who are engaged artistically. This occurs because artistic work involves the whole being. Nothing produces a craving for physical exercise the way artistic activity does. When children have been occupied artistically for perhaps two hours, and the time must be carefully regulated, something that longs for expression as specific body movements begins to stir in the organism. Art creates a real hunger for the right movements of the body. Thus, after children have been busy painting and drawing with their hands, singing with their voices, or playing musical instruments, and this should begin as soon as possible, we gradually lead those activities into the spatial movement of play. We must continue that inner artistic artistic activity of the children. Physical education is drawn from the other efforts at school, and there is an intimate connection between the two. If children are given no more physical exercise than they desire because of their artistic work, they will get the kind of sleep they need. We can help children live right while awake by drawing the intellectual out of the artistic, and as a result we also cultivate the right sleep in which all the organic processes of combustion are harmonized. For the body, nothing is more important than thoroughly artistic teachers. The more joy a teacher can experience in beautiful forms, in music, the more that teacher longs to move from abstractions toward rhythm and poetry. The more musical formation there is in a teacher, the better that teacher will be able to arrange games and exercises that offer children the opportunity for artistic expression. Unfortunately, however, today's civilization would like easy access to spirit, and people are disinclined to work very hard for spiritual ideals. As I have said before, while admitting the inadequacy of their own education, people claim to know how education should be reformed, and they are ready to make laws to support their views. There is no real inclination to consider the subtle processes of the human organism. People do not ask how gymnastics can arise from artistic activity. 
or what the human organism longs for as spatial movement. And little artistic sensibility is applied to solve these problems. The main occupation of modern intellectuals is to read books. They study Greek ideals, and the latest fad becomes a revival of the, in quotes, Olympic Games, although it is purely external. The Olympic Games are never studied from the perspective of what the human organism needs, as the Greeks did, because modern study always involves books or traditions that have been handed down. Modern people are not, of course, ancient Greeks and do not understand the role of the Olympic Games in Greek culture. In those days, children were taught dancing, wrestling and such by gymnasts, as I described. But where did the Greeks learn this? They learned it from the Olympic Games, which were not just artistic but also religious, a true offspring of Greek culture. In the Olympic Games, the Greeks gave themselves up completely to an atmosphere of art and religion, and thus with a true educational instinct they could bring these elements into the gymnastic exercises they gave to children. Abstract, prosaic, inartistic forms of physical culture are contrary to all real education, because they are contrary to true human development. Instead of looking in books to find out how to revive the Olympic Games, it would be far better if people tried to understand inner human nature. They would discover that unless physical education is based on inner needs, it causes too much combustion. The result of such exercises for children is a flabby muscular system later on in life. The muscles lose their ability to follow the soul and spirit. The body becomes hardened inwardly when we educate incorrectly through the intellect for waking life. It causes people to carry their bones as though the skeleton were in fact a burden rather than moving flexibly with the soul. Added to this are flaccid limbs overly inclined to combustion. A person gradually becomes like a balloon attached to a log weighed down by the salts of the body. Yet, because of inappropriate inner combustion processes, a person wants to escape from it. An intimate knowledge of the human being is needed to establish the correct relationship between the two processes of combustion and salt formation. We can balance the hardening caused by leading artistic activities into the intellectual if we encourage the kind of combustion that brings deep and peaceful sleep to children. Thus we eliminate the restlessness caused by most modern systems of physical education. Children who are forced to practice inappropriate physical exercises fidget inwardly during sleep, and in the morning when the soul returns to the body, restlessness and faulty inner combustion are the result. Thus we must expand our concepts with knowledge, because all of this shows that it is essential to have a deep understanding of human nature. If we consider humanity to be God's most precious creation in our earthly existence, we must certainly ask what it is that the gods have presented to us as the human being. What is the best way we can develop the human beings entrusted to us? Until the seventh year, children are thoroughly imitative 
And after the change of teeth, the child's inner nature tries to form itself according to what natural authority, in the broadest sense, reveals to it. Quite some time ago I wrote title Intuitive Thinking as Spiritual Activity. Footnote, Die Philosophie der Freiheit, 1895, originally published in English as The Philosophy of Spiritual Activity, also as The Philosophy of Freedom. End of footnote. In view of what I said there, I do not think you will accuse me of unduly emphasizing any particular social principle. Although what human life reveals is spiritually free, it is equally subject to the laws of nature. It is therefore not for us to decide, according to our likes or dislikes, what sort of education we should give our children between the time of the change of teeth and adolescence. Education should be dictated by the needs of human nature itself. Accordingly, up to the second dentition, at about seven, in every gesture and attitude, even in the blood's pulse, in rhythm of breath, and in the various vessels, children imitate everything that happens around them. From birth until the age of seven, the environment is the model that children copy. Similarly, from seven to puberty, children must develop free spiritual activity under the influence of natural authority. This must happen for healthy and free development and for the proper use of freedom in later life. The faculty of individual judgment does not develop fully until 14 or 15. By then children have developed enough so that teachers are justified in appealing to their judgment. At 14 or 15 children can reason for themselves, but before then we harm them and retard their development by continually discussing why and how with them. All of later life benefits immeasurably if between approximately seven and fourteen children were able to accept a fact because simply because a revered teacher considered it true. Let me read that again. All of later life benefits immeasurably if between approximately seven and fourteen children were able to accept a fact simply because a revered teacher considered it true not because they saw an underlying reason. Indeed, their intellect was not mature enough for that. Children's sense of beauty develops properly if they are able to accept the standard of a teacher whom they spontaneously and freely respect. Children experience goodness and follow its path in later life if instead of giving them a code of behavior to follow, we help them realize through our own heartfelt words how much we love benevolent actions and hate bad ones. The teacher's words can make children warmly responsive to goodness and coldly averse to evil, so that they naturally turn to the goodness because their teacher loves it. Children thus grow up not bound up in dogma, but filled with spontaneous love for truth, beauty and goodness, according to a beloved teacher. During the first period of school, if children have learned to adopt the teacher's standard of truth, beauty, and goodness, which they have been able to express as artistic Im imagery, these virtues become second nature, because it was not the intellect that developed these qu those qualities. Those who have been told repeatedly and dogmatically what to do or not do develop a cold, apathetic feeling for goodness. But those who learned in childhood to feel sympathy for goodness and antipathy toward evil, 
who through feeling preserved an enthusiasm for goodness and the power to avoid evil, absorbed right into the rhythmic organism a capacity to respond to goodness and feel aversion to evil. Later on in life it is as though under the influence of evil they could hardly breathe, as if the breathing and rhythmic systems were adversely affected by evil. This is in fact possible to achieve if after a child has reached the seventh year we allow the principle of natural authority to supersede that of imitation, which must predominate in the earlier years as we have seen. Of course authority must not be enforced. This is exactly the mistake made by those teaching methods that try to enforce authority by using corporal punishment. I heard that what I said about this yesterday seemed to suggest that this type of punishment has already been superseded. In fact, what I really said was that today's humanitarian feelings would like to eliminate it. I was told that the custom of whipping students in England is still common and that I created the wrong impression. I am sorry that my words were taken this way, but the point I want to make is that in true education authority must never be maintained by force and above all not by using a whip. Authority must arise naturally from what we are. In body, soul and spirit we become true teachers once our observation of human nature brings us true understanding of humanity. Genuine observation sees a work of divine creation in a growing human being. There is no more wonderful sight in the world than to see a child from birth on gradually develop in body to the definite from the indefinite, to see irrelevant arbitrary movements transformed into movements determined by the soul, to see the inner being begin to express itself externally as the spiritual element in the body gradually surfaces. The being that the divine world sent to earth and that we see revealed in the body becomes a revelation of the divine itself. A growing human being is indeed divine spirit's most splendid manifestation. If we come to understand a growing human being, not through ordinary anatomy and physiology, but by understanding how soul and spirit stream into the body, then all our knowledge of humanity becomes real humility and reverence in face of what flows to the surface of things from divine depths. As teachers this gives us a certain quality that sustains us, and for children it becomes a natural authority that they trust spontaneously. Instead of arming ourselves with a whip or some form of inner punishment, which I mentioned yesterday, we should arm ourselves with a deep knowledge of the human being and a capacity for real observation. This becomes an inner sense of morality and reverence for God's creation. With this we gain a true position in the school, and we realize how absolutely essential it is that all educators watch for the moments when a child's whole nature experiences a complete transformation. Change like this occurs, for example, between nine and ten, although one child may be earlier, another later. Much in life passes unnoticed by a materialist, but true observation of the human being tells us that something remarkable happens between nine and ten. Externally, children become restless. They cannot deal with the outer world and seem to timidly withdraw. In a subtle way, this happens to almost all children. In fact, it is normal. We must see this, 
because in children's feelings an important question arises at this time, but they cannot form the question mentally or express it in words. It is all a matter of feeling. Thus it is even stronger and calls all the more intensely for recognition. What do children look for at this age? Up to this age, reverence for their teachers has been a natural inner impulse. Now, however, they want their teachers to prove worthy of reverence in some way. Uncertainty arises, and when we see this we must respond. There is no need to think about it. We may be especially loving and encouraging with them. Whatever we do, we save them from a precipice because of our particular attitude and because children see that we enter their situation with their best interests at heart. This is far-reaching significance because if they remain insecure it will continue throughout life, unnoticed by them, but expressed in personality, temperament and physical health. We must understand how spirit affects all matter and thus physical health and how spirit must be nurtured so it can affect health in the right way. A genuine art of education emphatically demonstrates the need to harmonize spirit and matter. We must recognize what we owe to the education of modern civilization. It has separated everything, and when we think about nature we do so within today's materialism. When people become dissatisfied with the results of this view of nature, they invent spiritualism, which tries to reach spirit in a way that contradicts science. This is one of the tragedies of our day. Materialism has intellectualized everything and comprehends only its own views, so it can never reach the heart of matter. And modern spiritualism? Its followers want tangible spirits, who manifest physically through table-tapping and other such phenomena. Spirits must not remain spiritual, invisible, and intangible, because people are too lazy to penetrate to where spirit really exists. Humankind has fallen into a strange and tragic situation. Materialism speaks exclusively of matter, never spirit. But in reality, materialism cannot even understand matter. It describes it only in distilled abstractions whereas spiritualism, thinking it speaks of spirit, is also concerned exclusively with matter. Today's civilization is thus divided into materialists and spiritualists, a strange phenomenon indeed. Materialism cannot understand matter, and spiritualism cannot understand spirit. Thus we are left with the remarkable fact that human wholeness has fallen into a division of body and spirit. True education must harmonize the two. It cannot be too strongly emphasized that the goal of education must be to help humankind regain its understanding of spirit in matter. It must grasp the material world through spirit. We find spirit by understanding how to take hold of the material world in the right way. And if we understand something of spirit instead of materialized spirituality, we find a true and real spiritual world. To educate humanity properly, moving upward, not downward, we need the reality of the spirit world and an intelligent understanding of the material world. The end of Lecture 7